Thank you, John. Thank you, everybody. Please take your seats. It's just so good to be uh, here, to be with family. Uh, I want to bring special greetings from my wife, Kate. Uh, she is currently in New York City, in Manhattan. She's just preached twice this morning, and uh, I just got a text, actually, from uh, the pastor saying, your wife is world-class. Thank you so much that she's been with us. And so I'm, uh, of course, I knew that, but uh, that was a joke, everybody. Goodness gracious. Uh, but uh, anyway, she's, she's there, and she's been preaching at a women's conference, and the, um, the, uh, the hosts emailed her or contacted her a few months ago and said, oh, our other speaker has uh, had to pull out, and uh, so um, do you know anybody that could come and fill their slot? And Kate immediately, without even hesitating, said, absolutely, Rochelle, our women's pastor uh, from Raleigh, she, Raleigh Durham, she would... Uh, be awesome to have. Well, they immediately said, you bet, let's have her as well. And so Kate and Rochelle, Shannon, wave. Rochelle is our women's pastor here in uh, this church. And uh, so her and Kate have just been tearing it up over there in New York City. And uh, I've actually preached myself at a women's conference once in my life. And that was last year. And uh, I had such an awesome time, and the worship was off the chain. It was in Virginia, uh, Virginia Beach, and I was in this room just packed full of women, and I was on the, uh, up, you know, standing at my seat and in the worship, and I was looking around going, wow, Lord, this is just extraordinary. These women were just completely lost, just going for it, so in love with Jesus. And as I was just noticing that, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said, Duncan, do you know why Jesus chose 12 disciples and didn't choose a single woman? I said, goodness, Lord, I've never, ever had that thought. And no, I don't know why. And he said, because if he had chosen just one, she would have been so outstanding that all the other 11 would have just been absolutely just, you know, uh, what did I say, Mar? How did I put it? Intimidated. Intimidated. Thank you so much. I just had a bit of a mind blank there. Just with the, all the other eleven would have been so intimidated they would have just packed up and stopped following Jesus because they just couldn't have followed him like that. So I was like, "Wow, that's good, Lord. That was good." So shakaraba. Uh, so Kate's just going for it, and they've had an amazing weekend, and uh, I'm glad to be here this morning with you. I want to speak this morning on ruling with Christ, and you can take your Bibles, and uh, we love the Word of God here, we, we love the Holy Spirit, but we also very much treasure the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and, uh, and so I want to preach this morning from the Word of God, and I'm going to preach on being co-rulers with Christ, being co-rulers with Christ, and, oh, sorry, thank you, Mari, uh, so please turn with me to Matthew 18, Okay, and, uh, and we're going to be reading a passage in a moment, but by way of introduction to uh, this subject, I want to talk for a moment about authority, because kings and queens rule with authority. 
And it's their authority, backed up by their power, that enables them to not just make decrees and make agreements with their counselors that affect the entire laws and uh, culture of nations and the nation that they rule over, but uh, the authority that they carry, backed up by their power, that authority is available to everybody that's submitted to them in their sphere of influence, in their business, in the business of accomplishing what the king or the queen desires to accomplish. And the Lord showed me recently that, that the level of our authority is the level to the greatest authority we're willing to submit to. We only carry authority when we're submitted to authority. Think about it in your workplace. Your boss, those of you that have a boss, your boss has authority. And when you submit to that authority to carry out your boss's desires, will, work, you name it, you represent your boss in every moment that you exercise authority and you carry that boss's, her or his authority at the exact level that they carry it. Because you're representing them to the rest of the corporation or whatever it is, the world that you're in. In exactly the same way, Jesus is the king of glory and he is the ruler of the universe. He's the ruler and has conquered all of the darkness. He's always been the ruler of heaven, but since Adam gave away his authority that had been bestowed upon Adam as a co-ruler with, with Christ, with God, Father and the Holy Spirit. Adam had given that away to the serpent and Jesus came back into this world as a man to reestablish humanity as his co-rulers with him. And he had to become a man in order to do that, which he did 2,000 years ago. And he beat the devil not only throughout his entire life by not succumbing to a single sin, not succumbing to any of the temptation, but also laying down his life for all of humanity, for those who believe, and paid for all of our sin on the cross. So everything that hindered us from being a people of authority and co-ruling with him, Jesus totally paid for it at the cross with his own body and his own blood and reestablished us in his righteousness and his justice. Psalm says in Psalm 97 verse 2 that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. So for us to co-rule with him, God needed to reestablish us in his righteousness, not ours, and his justice, not ours. And he paid the penalty that was held against us that the law demanded we should pay, he paid it for us so that we can now co-rule with him. We can co-labor with him and his business is rulership because he's the king. And to the measure that we're submitted to him, we carry his authority, just like him. We're not his representatives in the sense that we represent him, we actually represent him. To meet us is to meet Jesus. Now, I want to just illustrate just how profound this is by sharing with you a couple of stories out of my career that I gave up 25 years ago in order to be uh, a f fully engaged in uh, the work of leading churches, etc. 
But prior to doing all of that, everybody, I hope I don't lose any friends now this morning, okay? But I used to be a police officer in Her Majesty's Police Force Service, actually, in the UK. And uh, it's a police service in the UK and a police force when necessary. <laughs> and, uh, and so I became a police officer when I was 24 years old, straight out of university. I had a degree in environmental biology. And I just realized that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life counting the species of grass in quadrangles um, and get paid $11,000 a year for it. So uh, instead, I ended up uh, joining the police force and the accelerated uh, promotion scheme for graduates and had a wonderful, uh, the possibility of a wonderful lifetime career in the police. And I just want to share with you something that I learned about kingship and rulership and authority when I was a police officer. Now, we, um, in the British police service, when you uh, become, can you imagine me in a Bobby's hat helmet? Honestly, it was ridiculous. It was redonkulous. I was 24 years old. I looked like I was about 14. I was extremely posh because my parents had sent me to a British boarding school when I was uh, in grade 7 till grade 12 uh, while they lived in Nigeria. Prior to that, I was uh, from grade 1 to grade 6, from the age of 5 and 3 quarters to when I was 11, I was at a boarding school that was a missions, American uh, mission school in Nigeria. And, uh, and so I actually had an American accent. Can you believe that? You can hardly believe that. You're all looking at me going, no way. <laughs> but uh, yes, I used to speak with a full American accent when I was 11 years old. When I got to school in England, I realized that that just wasn't cool. And so it didn't take me long for me to develop um, a posh English accent, which I've lost now after 19 years of being on this side of the Atlantic. Um, but... Uh, it comes out every now and then. But I had a posh English accent so badly that it sounded as though I had a tennis ball stuck in my mouth. And, um, and here I am in my police uniform with my helmet looking like a puppy of a Labrador retriever with my blonde hair and skinny as a rake and stand, well actually I was pretty lean and muscular but anyway I was uh, you know but I'm standing there and I really did not look remotely intimidating I don't think one of the things that we had to do was um, after being away at police academy we came back we had five weeks with a tutor constable and we watched the tutor constable then we went back for five more weeks then we came back and now our tutor constable the same one gets to watch us and we now have to put into practice what we've learned and and then we go back for a couple of weeks and then we graduate with big ceremony and everything and we become a fully fledged police officer although of course in their probation but still on full pay etc still all the same uh uh, powers that any other officer would have. Now, so here I am, my first arrest in my second five weeks. And the person that I was required to arrest 
had been issued, there had been an, a warrant issued for their arrest because they had refused to come to court on several occasions. And so now Her Majesty's court had actually issued a warrant of arrest to arrest this man because he was a danger to his family and a danger to the community because he was a violent, violent man and had caused tremendous violence and was actually in danger of even further than just violence, maybe even murdering somebody. And so how many of you know that if that type of person was in your community and in your neighborhood and had been terrorizing you, you would have been very grateful for a police officer or two to come and actually protect you and arrest that person, especially when the court have issued a warrant for that to happen. So here I am, everything's supposed to be easy and I'm absolutely terrified. And I walk up to this extremely uh, run-down and, uh, you know, uh, anyway, a, a, a sort of very um, rough kind of neighborhood, one could say. And, uh, and so, put it this way, they don't like seeing police officers. And so I come with my tutor constable, I walk up to the door, and uh, I, I'm like... And I'm like, <laughs> the door opens, and the guy goes, yeah, what the f*** do you want? And liberally uses the F word. And I'm like, wow, that's not very nice. That's not how you speak to one of Her Majesty's police officers. Goodness, do you know who I am, was what I was thinking on the inside. And uh, I said, um, yes, um, Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but um, I'm, I'm just going to have to um, let you, I've come to let you know that you are under arrest and that you're going to have to come with me. The door slams in my, in my face. My Tudor constable was about, felt like he was six foot wide. He was just solid muscle. And he was an ex-Ulster constabulary police officer from Northern Ireland, from Belfast, where there, he had just literally through the 70s and 80s had gone through, you know, practical civil war on the streets. And he just, I'm standing there and I can feel him, right? He grabs me by my front, the front of my tunic. He pulls me round and he says, you are a disgrace to the uniform that you're wearing, you idiot. Never, ever apologize for what is your lawful duty to do. What's the matter with you? He said, you bang on that door and you grab that man and you bring him to the nick, which is what we call the jail. Never, ever apologize like that again for what is your lawful duty to do. Of course, I'm standing there and, <laughs> and I knew I had a choice. I'm either going to go and spend the rest of my life doing something completely different or I'm going to obey him. I'm going to step up to the plate and I'm actually going to do my job. Well, I decided I was going to do the latter. I banged on the door. It opened. I grabbed him. I said, you're coming with me, okay? And walked off down there. And by the time we got to the car, despite the fact that he was wrestling me, struggling with me, kicking, screaming, 
my Aikido, <laughs> Jiu-Jitsu, and all the other things that I learned at Police Academy came in handy and I was able to manhandle him into the car. Of course, in, in England, we don't have guns as police officers, not your normal bobbies on the street. So you have to say, stop! Or I'll say, stop again! <laughs> a little, little different over here. Or maybe we do have a, did used to have a truncheon so we could say, stop! Or I'll throw my stick at you! I learned, uh, I learned a powerful lesson concerning what it means to be a co-ruler with Christ that day. I want you to imagine for just a moment that another scenario. I want you to imagine that one night when I was on uh, night shift, four o'clock in the morning, we'd heard that there were some uh, break and entry suspects, broken an entry into a uh, commercial building and had stolen jewelry, etc. We blew light all the way across the other side of town. When we get there, there they are, running out with all the, all the jewelry and everything. And uh, it, by the way, it's your grandmother's uh, diamond ring. And I come out, leap out of the car. I race after them across the green, across the grass. And of course, being six foot four with legs like a giraffe, as well as being you know, highly fit at that time, I outpaced this person that smoked way too many cigarettes and drank too much. And I do this tackle, I tackle them, I bring them to the ground. And I say, you, caught you. Now then, you wait right there <laughs> while I go and bring Her Majesty the Queen. She is going to know what to do with you. She's going to arrest you. And she's probably going to put you in jail. Now you just wait there. And then I get in my car. Five hours later, I arrive outside Buckingham Palace. Hello, I'm here to see Her Majesty the Queen on the Queen's business. Oh, come on in. The Queen's having breakfast. It's nine o'clock in the morning. I walk into the Queen's breakfast. Mom, Your Majesty, I'm so... Actually, Your Majesty... I'm so sorry to have interrupted your breakfast, ma'am. Um, but uh, PC2055 Smith here, member of your uh, services in Nottinghamshire Constabulary. Yes, I've driven here five hours. I want you to know that I've caught somebody stealing jewellery. And yes, yes, where are they? Well, they're actually right there in the field still where I told them to stay. And I wondered if your majesty wouldn't mind... If you don't mind and it doesn't bother you, would you please come with me and make the arrest? You know, because after all, it's your authority. And I am a, a man of humility. And I wouldn't want anyone to think that, I mean, I was trying to be a big, powerful person or anything. You know, I wouldn't want you to think that I thought that you were threatened by me using your authority. She is not going to give me a commendation. She is going to say to her chief steward, please have this imbecile removed from my presence. Strip him of his uniform, find some clothes and civvies. 
Never, ever, ever let him wear that uniform again. Please have a word with the constabulary. Find a new officer. That man, that young man, is a complete buffoon. And we're all sitting here and we're thinking, okay, that's so obvious. But you know that that's exactly what we're like when we ask Jesus to come and heal our friend. Just let that sink in, catch the fire family. Every time you look to God to do what he's commanded you to command him to do through you, the angels are looking at you going, when are they going to get it? Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. What we're reading here in the next six verses, between 15 and 20, is a lesson in rulership and co-rulership with Christ. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. One of the number one disqualifications that you could ever do to yourself from co-ruling with Christ that would hinder you from ruling and reigning in your life is for you to entertain and nurse and have an offense against somebody else. And we do it on a daily basis over and over again. Whether you're in this room, whether you're watching online, letting go of the right to have an offense is a critical success factor for co-ruling with Christ. You see, what happens when we have an offense, and by the way, an offense is never, ever, ever given. It's only ever taken. And when we have an offense, often our reaction to the person that's offended us is, well, they are going to have to come and say sorry to me. And here's Jesus saying, no, when you know that someone's offended you, you take action and you go sort it out. You see, because what happened, what's he saying to us? Why is it so critical? Because when we have an offense in our hearts, we literally put ourselves into a jail. We put ourselves into a cave of self-pity. We're licking our wounds because of what they did to us. We're nursing the wounded heart that we have. And we think we're alone, but we're actually in the company of a host of people, all of them that have hurt us over the years. And they're our company. And we're allowing them over and over and over again in the jail of our own offenses that we've placed ourselves in. We're allowing them to continue beating us up over and over and over again. And when we're in that position, the only thing that we do between the bars of that gate is whinge and whine and moan to anybody that will listen. 
When in reality, we were not born to be hemmed in by our own offenses. We're born to rule on a throne with Jesus. We don't give away our authority to anybody by entertaining an offense in our heart on account of their behavior towards us. We can't do anything about how people will react to us. The thing that we do have rulership over is how we choose to respond to them. And Jesus goes on. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. I want you to notice right here, okay, Jesus is speaking already now. You have power. You have authority. Because you're a king, just like me, kings, they don't lift a finger. King except to write with a pen, and kings speak with their mouths. And we're just entering into a decade of the mouth in the Jewish calendar. Rosh Hashanah, right now, the new year. And we're entering in to a decade of, co, of, of, of the mouth in which we, as kings that are co-laborers with the king of kings, he's the king with the capital K, we're the kings with the little K, and we get to co-rule with him, and we get to do it by decree, Proverbs twenty two twenty eight, decree a thing and it shall be established for you that light would shine on your ways. And we get to do it through the prayer of agreement, which we'll come on to in just a moment. Because where there's a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. And when we speak, what we speak is established for us. And guess who establishes it for us? God doesn't look for us to be the ones to establish his kingdom. He's got an altogether more glorious, stronger, powerful, faster army at his disposal than all of us put together called two-thirds of the angels that have ever been created, and they're all servants of God, ministers that are flames of fire, Psalm 104. And so these angels, they travel at the speed of light, everybody. And God is looking for you immediately to put things right, to put things in order, to change things. We don't rule over each other. We get to rule over ourselves. We don't rule over any other human beings. He's the only one worthy of ruling over other human beings. But together with him, we get to rule over all of the principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities of the dark world that Jesus has conquered through his cross and resurrection. And we get to rule over our circumstances. We get to rule over any sicknesses. We get to rule over impossibility. We get to rule over darkness. We get to rule everybody. And he's saying, if there's just two or three, every word will be established. Now look at this. But if they refuse, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the ecclesia. What's the ecclesia? The ecclesia, Jesus is using a secular term here. It's the first time it's been used in this way. And Jesus is saying, that ecclesia, you know what that ecclesia is? It's the Roman council legislative that comes behind the army to back up 
after the armies conquered to establish the rule, the law, and the culture, and the ways of Rome. That's the ecclesia. The person in charge of it is the apostolos. And I'm the chief apostolos, Jesus is saying. I'm the chief shepherd of your souls. I'm the ruler, the king of the universe. And by the way, I'm with you, my ecclesia, my legislation on the earth. Let's co-labor together. Let's rule and reign together. Let's establish what's going on here. And in this context, the brother that's offended and the brother that's going to the one who he says has offended him and the one who he says has offended him won't listen. And he took two witnesses, his friends, and they still won't listen. Why? Because there's always two sides to every story, everybody. And not only is there two sides to every story, there's often three or four perspectives and sides to every story. And that's why... He says, tell it to the ecclesia, tell it to the legislative, my legislative on the earth. Tell it to each other so that those people can help both of you come to a godly perspective and a willingness for you each to listen to each other and walk in humility and realize that you both have a different perspective, but both perspectives need to be validated as to why there's been an upset. And here's the deal, everybody. We are incredibly thin-skinned about what people have said and done to us. The one who's offended us. My husband, he's such an, oh my gosh, he's so hurtful. Well, my wife, she's just so hurtful. Oh, well, my friend, my boss, they're just so hurtful. Oh, my mom and dad, they've hurt me. Blah, blah, blah. And we're incredibly thin-skinned about what others have done to us. Meanwhile, when anybody points out what we have done, perhaps even the same things to others, we suddenly become extraordinarily thick-skinned. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. I'd have no clue why they would take it that far. Man, they just need to get over themselves and get a life. Gee whiz, what is wrong with them? And that's why Jesus says, take it to the church so that they can help both sides see the perspective. But then he says this, look. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. The church for hundreds of years has used this to justify in many places kicking people out of the church. And you know what? There are moments where it is legitimately right not to allow certain individuals, predators that might be looking for prey to come and be a part of a community that they're not yet ready in the attitude of their heart nor repentant to be safe in that community. There's legitimacy in protecting the community from those kinds of individuals. But this is not the context, yet it's used to justify kicking people out of the church. You know, go to your brother, he doesn't listen, take two or three, they don't listen, take it to the church, still don't listen. Church, kick that brother out. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Look at what he's saying. Treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. Treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. And how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He loved them even more. So when there's an upset and the church 
they still won't even listen to the legislator, the ecclesia, the church. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, church, you need to go overboard in love to love that individual because they're literally behaving as if they're not saved. And remember when they weren't saved, they spoke a different language. They spoke, they had a different mentality. They didn't even understand the things of the kingdom. Treat them like that because they're literally that ignorant if it's got to this level and win them back in love. And then he says this, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is the nuclear bomb of prayer, everybody. It's literally a red button nuclear bomb of prayer that Jesus is saying, when mountains stand against you, when barrenness is in your generational line and you can't have children, when Poverty is in your generational line and riches fly away from you. When sickness is in your generational line and you get sick over and over again. When anger and malice and bitterness and all these things that are against, that seem to come up on the inside and you can't do anything about it. It feels like in life there's no favor. Other people have favor. People next to you in church on Sundays or in the, in the Ignite group, their testimony is favor, 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 but you feel you have no favor. Find somebody that will agree with you to burst that in the name of Jesus and press that red button and let the nuclear bomb off. And the Father will go to work on your behalf. That's how Aaron was conceived. And let me just make something very clear to everybody. My job was just to do the prayer of agreement. And it was Sean and his wife who went home and made sure they do their part for that conception. <laughs> and then Jesus says, he gives us, he, that, that verse gives us the um, pathway, the doorway, the nuts and bolts of how to bring what's impossible into the realm of possibility. And then he says this, where two of you or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of you. I'm there in the midst of you. What's he saying here? He's not saying I'm here and I love you all and I've got my little cozy blankie for you and I got your little dummy for you. No, he's not saying that. He's saying Revelation 19 verse 11, there is an open door above your heads and I am riding on my white horse and I have the armies of heaven behind me and I'm with you and I'm ready to do whatever you and I and you agree for me to do in these circumstances. And I'm going to change what's going on in Durham. And I'm going to change what's going on in Raleigh. And I'm going to change what's going on in Chapel Hill. I'm going to change what's going on in your family line. I'm here as the King of glory. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13. For it is God who's at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. God's just waiting for you to let him use your mouth out of the overflow of your good, sweet heart that is offense-free. 
Let's stand, everybody. You know, while you stand, I just want to say this. Last week, I was in Toronto. I went up for the conference. I rode my motorcycle all the way up there two days and rode it all the way back two days. Twelve hours a day in the saddle, roughly speaking. On my own. Facing fears that I don't normally, I'm not normally in touch with because they're at a subterranean level. And sometimes in life, you need to be willing to do something that actually provokes your fears and gets you in touch that they're there. And for me, riding my motorcycle, spending four days alone, poked my number one fear, being alone. See, because I was sent to boarding school when I was five and three quarters year old. And for 13 years, two, three, four times a year, I'd have to say goodbye to my mom and dad and my family. And my biggest number one anxiety is abandonment and rejection and unworthiness. Monday last week when I arrived in Toronto, after I well, arrived on the Saturday, I preached on the Sunday, Monday morning, I went to Stratford, Ontario, an hour and a half away on my motorcycle again, and I had seven hours of trauma counseling as the recipient of the counseling from a woman who's a Christian but has a secular PhD in trauma counseling. And she took me through all that I needed to go through and she helped me to identify, yes, all of the RTF healing that I've had, which is so important, uh, that restoring the foundations and inner healing and other counseling that I've had, so good, cleansing my spirit, man, cleansing my soul realm. But my body had stored up pain and trauma and anxiety in areas of my body. That even though I had been baptized in the liquid golden honey of daddy's love over and over again in the last 19 years, there was still this trauma. And my number one trauma, I got in, I got in touch with two weeks before I, or three weeks before I went up. Sitting there ready to go to church Sunday morning and all of a sudden I said to Kate, honey, I've got this butterflies in my stomach. I feel sick. I'm so nervous and anxious I think that's what I'm going to deal with in my trauma counseling because I've just realized I have that every single Sunday. And in my trauma counseling, I found out why. Because when I was five and three quarters, I would have to go to church in the missions church with 300 other students, including the grade 12 people that were up here when I was down here without my parents, my brothers or anybody. And I imbibe trauma. My heart was broken and my body stored pain. And then she helped me and set me free from it all. But how many of you know that that's probably a good thing to get set free of when you're the pastor of a church <laughs> and you lead a global movement of churches? It's probably a good idea to get free of that. And I want you to know, everybody, I'm so excited. I woke up this morning. I could hardly wait to be with you all. Yes, thank you, Jesus. Instead of being anxious and full of, oh, 
I didn't even like going to family parties. If you've been wondering why you haven't seen a lot of me, now you know why. I much prefer to just hide up there on my 13 acres. Surround myself with trees so that you're not there. <laughs> I'm really glad, everybody, that that's over, baby. It's over. I'm free. Shakaraba. Lift up your hands to Jesus. Lift them up. You were born to rule this world. And in Adam, you lost your throne. But Jesus Christ has given it back to you. And you believe in him. You're born again. You're born to rule. Mark, come on. Oh, Jonathan, come on. You are born to rule. Make a decision in your heart today. Just close your eyes for a moment. Say, Lord, this week, would you show me my trauma? Would you, throw, would you show me, Lord, Lord, the offenses that I've picked up? Lord, would you give me courage to go and see people that I need to go and face? Lord, above all, would you teach me what a powerful king you are and what a powerful king I am? And would you teach me, Lord, how to live truly embracing community, to be in community. Lord, put me in community. Don't let me isolate myself any longer. Now I want to say this to you. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, He who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all sound judgment. Let's put that in another way. In the opposite. When you embrace community, when you join in with the ecclesia, when you embrace being in an Ignite group, you can get lost in this crowd. There's 600 people on Sundays now, 300 in each service. You can get lost in this crowd, but you can't get lost in an Ignite group. You can't get lost in your friendship circle. Press in. Welcome them. When you go into community, you don't seek your own desire. You seek the desire of the king and others. And instead of raging against sound wisdom, you walk in the wisdom of God.